Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to give you an introduction to the setting of the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth, and then we're going to look at the introduction in verses 1 through 9. The title this morning is A Seriously Troubled Church. A seriously troubled church. The church at Corinth was a seriously troubled church. It was infected with sexual immorality. It was divided by cliques that dragged each other into court and crippled. It was crippled by the abuse of the spiritual gifts. The church was in need of radical spiritual surgery. And even though they were true believers, the Corinthians had a lot of growing up to do. They had to stop following the immoral, selfish, and argumentative ways of their unsaved neighbors there in Corinth, the notoriously immoral city of that day. And you can kind of get, see Paul, you get a sense of disappointment in Paul. You know, it's like a hurt father whose, whose children are you know, not, you know, following the, 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 the right ways. And you get that sense because of the harsh words he uses with the Corinthians. And yet Paul, he's, he's like a skilled surgeon who, who sees the problem, knows the problem, he diagnoses the problem, and he focuses on the source of the problem, which was pride and lack of true love in the church. Corinth was a commercial success that is you know their 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 business there they were very wealthy due to their commercial success the the only thing that equal that was the depravity of the city the immorality of Corinth was so well known that uh, Aristophanes coined the Greek phrase or the Greek verb Corinthia zomai Corinthia zomais meaning to act like a Corinthian It's a synonym for sexual immorality. Greek plays of that day often portrayed Corinthians as drunkards and degenerates. And the Corinthians drew attention to their lewdness through the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. The city's corrupt nature gave them a great opportunity to show the Roman world the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're to be doing. We're to be be showing the world the transforming power of Jesus Christ. They're looking for that. They need that. They want that, though they wouldn't admit it or know it. Christianity was intended to enable us to make our way through this world, to enable us to make this pilgrimage journey on our way to the world to come. You know, it's not the water outside the boat that's dangerous. All right? It's not the water outside the boat that sinks it. Because a boat is designed for deep waters. It's when the water gets into the boat. That's the problem. That's when the boat's in danger. And like the church, it was meant to get into the world. The problem is the the world has gotten into the church. And followed a lot of its ways. And believed a lot of the things that it espouses. That's what put the, the Christians in great danger at Corinth. 
the world had come into the church. And what Paul had to say about that is the subject of his letters to the Corinthians. And many of you know, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, what a chameleon is. It's a, a lizard-like critter that can change uh, it's the color of its skin to adapt to its surroundings. And many of God's creatures do that. They blend into the nature or into nature with God-given camouflage that help them, helps them survive. It's natural to fit in. We want to fit in, and, and it's natural to adapt to the environment. But followers of Jesus Christ are new creatures. They're born from above, born of the Spirit, changed from within. They have new values. They have new lifestyles contrary to the world. And, and, the, and the Christian's values and lifestyles challenge the world and clash with the accepted morals. We are not to fit into this world. We're not. We weren't meant to fit into this world. The true believers don't, true believers don't blend in very well, or they shouldn't. You see, we should stand out like the ark did in the middle of the desert in Noah's day, out of place. The Christians in Corinth, they were struggling with their environment because they were surrounded by corruption and every kind of sin that you could think of, and they felt the pressure to go with the flow. And this world is pressuring us, the Christians, the church, the Word of God, to go along with what they're saying and coming to the place where they're beginning to outlaw or want to outlaw what the Word of God says because it doesn't, it doesn't meet their agenda. And we're beginning to feel the pressure. Any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to swim against the current. And that's what we need to continue to do is to swim against the current. They knew they were free in Christ. But what did this freedom mean? doesn't mean we have a freedom to sin. It doesn't mean it's a license to sin. What were they to do about idols or sexuality? What should they do about marriage, women in the church, the gifts of the Holy Spirit? You know, these weren't just hypothetical questions. The church was being weakened by immorality and spiritual immaturity. The believer's faith was being tested in an immoral city, Corinth. Some of them were failing the test. They were giving in. And Paul heard of their struggles. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. To deal with the problems they were experiencing. To heal their divisions. And to answer the questions that they had. And Paul met them, these questions and these problems head on. He confronted them head on with their sin. And their need to make things right. And to make a clear commitment to Jesus Christ. And then after a short introduction in verses 1 through 9 which we'll look at here as we go on, Paul immediately turns, the question, the, turns, turns to the question of unity, beginning in verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 21. Paul emphasizes the clear and simple gospel message around which all believers should gather together. We should all be coming together around the scriptures. And Paul explains the role of the church leaders, and he urges them to grow up in their faith. Then he deals with the immorality of certain church members, and he deals with the problems of lawsuits among Christians, Christians taking each other to court. He tells them uh, uh, to use church discipline instead and to settle their internal problems among themselves. 
The Bible gives us instructions on how to deal with problems with somebody in the church. And because of prostitution and immorality, it was, it was widespread in Corinth. Marriages in Corinth were a mess. And many marriages in, in the church today are a mess. Not to mention the world, but we can understand more about the world because they don't have the scriptures. They're not born again. Christians weren't sure how to act. And Paul gives painful and sensible answers to marriage in chapter 7, verses 1 through 40. And then concerning the question of meat sacrificed to idols. Paul suggests that they show total commitment to Jesus, but yet be sensitive to, to believers, especially the weaker ones, the weaker brothers and sisters, there in chapter 8. Then Paul goes on to talk about worship. And he carefully explains the role of women, the Lord's Supper, and the use of spiritual gifts in chapter 11. And then right there in the middle of 1 Corinthians, in the middle of this book, there is this beautiful section uh, and description and definition of the greatest gift, which is love, in chapter 13. And then Paul finishes with a discussion about the resurrection in chapter 15 and some final thoughts and greetings and a blessing in chapter 16. So in this letter, Paul confronted the Corinthians about their sins and their shortcomings. 1 Corinthians calls on Christians, all Christians, to be careful not to blend in with the world and to accept its values and its lifestyles. And they are being, you know, we're being pressured to accept its values and its lifestyles. We have to live a Christ-centered, blameless life that makes a difference for God. And as we read 1 Corinthians, you know what? Let's examine our values in, in, light of the total, in light of a total commitment to Jesus Christ. The purpose for 1 Corinthians was to identify problems in the Corinthian church and then to offer solutions and to teach the believers <clears throat> how to live for Jesus in a corrupt society. You know, picture the church at Corinth. On the day that they got Paul's letter. There were several places that the Christians could have gathered to read this letter. And it was probably well known that some, some of those who met at Chloe's house had gone to Ephesus to see Paul. And they told Paul about all that was going on in the Corinthian church there in Corinth. So Chloe herself seems to have <clears throat> kept no secrets about what was going on and told Paul. And the Corinthian believers, <clears throat> excuse me, could pretty well guess what kind of things Paul was told. And those who told Paul, those informants, would tell him about the squabbling that was going on in the church, about the rivalries, about the immorality, the lawsuits, the marriage problems, the misuse of, of God's grace and his gifts. It was probably quite a meeting with all of these people there. So as we join the, we're joining this crowd in a sense, who are waiting to hear this letter read that was written by Paul. So as we join this crowd this morning, we can pick up bits and pieces of their conversation and we can hopefully, and that's what we've been praying for for 1 Corinthians, is that, that we will get, catch the thrill as, as this chattering of excitement dies away. 
when one of the leading Christians stands up with this great letter in his hand and begins to read it to the church. A letter that we're anxious to read. And we can only imagine how those there listen to every word. And you know, let's join them this morning and think about each and every sentence of this letter as if we were there with them and we're reading it and hearing it for the very first time. Having that excitement to hear what God's words are, what Paul has to say. And we should have that sense, that feeling every time we read the scriptures. What is it that God wants to say to me? I want to hear him speak to me. So let's begin now in chapter 1 with verses 1 and 2. As Paul gives the introduction now to the letter. In verse 1 he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brothers, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Notice, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So Paul starts his letter by sending his greetings. And the first word is Paul. Paul. That was his signature. Now, we usually sign our letters and documents at the end. We write the body of the letter, and it says, truly yours, and then the, the name of the, of the writer is signed. But in Paul's day, the signature came first. And most of the people in that crowd knew about Paul because he was already well known. People either loved him or they hated him. They admired him or they despised him. They lovingly imitated him or they strongly ridiculed him, but they could not ignore him because Paul had turned the whole world upside down Paul was brilliant and he was bold he was courageous Paul was a name that was either important or meaningless to people it was a name that said so much it spoke volumes it was a name that was known in Jerusalem it was known in Antioch and Galatia. It was known in Macedonia and Athens. It was known in Corinth and Ephesus. And it's a name bigger than all others in Christianity and the church except for the name of Jesus Christ. The people knew the name of Paul. And to many people it brought to their remembrance an intense man who had sat down beside them and one day led them to Jesus Christ. And after signing the letter, Paul immediately reminds his readers of his call. Since he was about to lay down the law to these people, it was important that they knew that everybody is reminded just exactly who Paul is. Who is this guy? And so without hesitation, he tells them his position there in verse 1. I am Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Notice. Paul begins by telling, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And that was way more important than being, you know, an ambassador or a governor by the will of Caesar. Paul seems to be using his title as a challenge to the people. It's as if he's saying to the people, I dare any of you in the church to find fault with me if you want to. He says, my credentials are just as good as Peter or John's. He says, hey, I didn't choose to be an apostle. 
I wasn't chosen by some church committee. Nobody appointed me. I didn't take this upon myself. His position was given to him by men. But directly from the crucified, I'm sorry, his position wasn't given to him by men, by men, but directly from the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord. He was God's chosen. God's chosen apostle to the Gentile world. His apostleship gave him authority over the Gentile churches, even the Roman and Colossian churches that he started. Beware and think twice. He's saying, this wasn't the word of a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher, no matter how gifted and inspired. This was the word of an apostle. An apostle. And an apostle by the will of God. And an apostle could deal in death as well as life. Now, there are no apostles left today. All right? There are some churches who you know, say, oh, we have apostles and we have prophets. No, not, not like that of the, of the biblical proportion. They died out with the churches of the first generation, generation. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Neither Moses nor Elijah had anybody greater than Paul in their day. But Paul also reminds his readers of his compassion. He says, Sosthenes, you know, you remember, he, he says in verse 1, we're called through Christ to the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So Sosthenes was probably Paul's secretary. And when Paul first went to Corinth, it was at a synagogue where Crispus, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue, got saved with many others in Acts 18. Then the authorities of the synagogue got together and they threw Paul out and Crispus was replayed by Sosthenes in Acts 18. Now Paul describes the saints, notice in verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, notice, who are sanctified to be, you know, they're, again, they're called to be saints. Now, he addresses the local church first. Bring, he brings attention to the place immediately. He says, to the church at Corinth. The, the, the Corinth that Paul knew was founded by Julius Caesar. The church, though, had been founded by Jesus Christ. Corinth was known, was known for its filth. The church was known for its faith. Corinth was known for its bullying, I'm sorry, for its buying and selling, and its commerce. The church knew about Calvary. Corinth was a place for business. The church was a place for believers. And the primary business of Corinth was pleasure. For the church, it was purity. Corinth was a product of the world. The church was a product of the word of God. And the Corinthians, man, they lived a fast life. They lived life in the fast lane. Every two years, they held the Ismithian Games. Their city was a hustling, bustling center of business, and many that were there were very wealthy. The temple of Aphrodite had its famous cult statue there and its 1,000 consecrated prostitutes. It drew thousands of people to Corinth, and it did a thriving business. The city of Corinth was, was infamous around the world because and for its immorality and drunkenness. It was a Greek Sodom. Paul's detailed description of paganism was dictated from the city of Corinth in Romans chapter 1. Corinth was famous for its bronze metalworks. 
The Corinthian metalsmiths, they had a secret formula for mixing copper, gold, and silver. And the smelting ovens, where they would melt all of this, these metals, the smelting ovens that were deep in caverns dug out of the rocks were like a hell on earth. Because the poor miserable slaves who kept the ovens blazing, they never saw daylight being in these caves dug out of the rock. They never saw daylight. They lived like moles underground from their childhood. The heat that they had to deal with, that they had to endure, it was agonizing and it was unbearable and the fumes that they breathed were poisonous. Their skin was exposed to all of this. Their skin was pitted. It was scarred from the constant shower of molten metal that they were exposed to. Their life was short. It was cheap. And those who died, man, they just throw them into those furnaces. Men, women, and children lived to do the will of Molech, which was a, a horrible, horrible, despicable God. The people were often whipped. Slaves were often allowed to, they were allowed to mate because this produced a supply of free labor. The miserable slaves were used until the last, out of, uh, out, last ounce of strength was squeezed out of them. Anyone who became blind or incapacitated and, and couldn't, wasn't useful anymore, they couldn't work anymore, they were just thrown aside to starve to death or to beg on the piles of garbage. Many miserable mothers watched a loved child treated this way by heartless you know, masters who were only interested in making a profit. This city of Corinth was some 600,000 people that Paul had come to. Paul had walked the streets. He had mingled and socialized with Jews and peddlers, merchants and sailors, retired soldiers and, and store owners, uh, slaves, harlots, jugglers, sellers of wickedness. He mingled and socialized with all of these people. And you know what? He had a compassion and a love for them. He took them all into his heart and he determined in his heart he would win as many of those people as he could to Jesus Christ. And then Paul turns his attention to the people who made up the church of Jesus Christ. He said there in verse 2, notice, they were sanctified in Jesus Christ and called to be saints. Notice, they were sanctified in Jesus Christ and called to be saints. And those two words, sanctified and saints, are similar. The word sanctified is the Greek word hagiazo, which means to be hallowed or holy. And the word saints comes from the word hagios, which means holy or separated ones. So the Corinthian Christians stood out like a sore thumb compared with the unsaved crowds who walked the streets of Corinth. And that's the way Christians should be in this world. We should stick out like a sore thumb as we walk through this world. In a pornographic and perverted society, which approves of the worst forms of decadence and depravity, they look at it, they approve of it as some kind of alternate lifestyle. Christians were to live as Jesus lived. And so far as their standing was concerned, it says here, they were in Christ. And they were perfect because of Christ. But the real condition was totally different, which is what this letter is all about. Their position was right on, but how they lived was not. That's why Paul had to write this letter. And that's why all Christians are called to examine themselves. Even though Paul's letter is to the church in Corinth, it's written to those who are sanctified in Christ our Lord. 
But here was the problem. The Corinthians had lost sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't their Lord. He wasn't their master. That's why they had all of their squabbles. That's why they, they had all of their shortcomings in their life and in the church and in their family. That's why things were so messed up. They had lost sight of Jesus. They had neglected their first love. Look at verse 3 now. Grace to you, Paul says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the salutation. And Paul used a common form of Christian greeting. Grace is favor. It is, and many today think it's a dumping ground for sin. Grace is, our undeserved, is God's undeserved favor for us. We don't deserve His grace. And therefore, people think, well, you know, I'll just go to Jesus. I'll just say I'm sorry. And, you know, and because of His grace, He'll forgive me. You know, grace is not a dumping ground for sin. It's not a license to sin. Don't take it for granted that God just, oh, okay, it's all right, I'm covered. No, we are called to be free from sin, to forsake sin and to turn away from sin. Grace is favor and peace is one of, of grace's fruits. Peace, the word shalom is still the most common Jewish greeting today. You go to Israel and you'll see people saying shalom, shalom. The peace that Paul speaks about here is the peace of God, which he said surpasses all understanding. It's the peace that only Christians can have because only Jesus can give it. And the world, you can see we're not at peace. The world is looking for peace. It is hurting for peace. They don't know how to find it. They don't know where to get it. And yet Jesus is the answer. He's the only one who can give it. The world does not have it and it can't give that, and the world can't give that kind of peace. The greeting, grace, and peace is fitting only for 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 believer to believer because it speaks of blessings that only they can have. You and I are saved by the grace of God. It's God's grace in action. It's His love in action. And when we've been saved by the grace of God, then we can have the peace of God in our hearts. But we can't experience that peace until we've experienced the grace of God. And the question is, have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you received Christ as your Savior? I'm not talking about going to church or belonging to a church. I'm not talking about being religious. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Does He rule your life? If you have, then you will have peace in your heart because He took upon Himself our sins. So having been justified by faith, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 4 through 9, Paul gives thanks. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge. Notice, the words by Jesus Christ in verse 4 would be better translated in Jesus Christ. Because you see, it's in Christ that we have all of these blessings. Paul said in Ephesians 1.3, we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ. 
And this is what Paul is talking about in Colossians 3.16 when he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You see, we're to have the word of Christ in our hearts, not just up here. It needs to get from here to here. The word of Christ refers to the revelation that he brought into the world, the revelation of himself, which is scripture. Peace and thankfulness, as well as unity, love, and all the required qualities, they all come and flow out of a mind that's controlled by the scriptures. The word dwell in Colossians 3.16 means to live in or to be at home. Is the word of God at home in your heart? Does the word of God live in your heart? If it does, does does it impact the way you live? Now, it's great to know the word and to have the word, but does it it impact the way that you live? Otherwise, it's really of no value if it's not changed my life and I'm not living by it. Paul is calling on all believers to let the word of God move into their heart and to be at home in their lives. To dwell richly could also be translated abundantly or extravagantly rich. Is... Is our heart abundantly and extravagantly rich with the scriptures? Or do we just know a few here and there? The truths of scripture should just, you know, seep into every part of of the Christian's life. As Paul said, every fiber of our being, every rule, every thought, every word, every action. The word dwells in us when we hear it, when we handle it, when we hide it, and when we hold it fast. But in order to do those things, the Christian has to read the Word. They have to study the Word. They have to live the Word. And to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you is the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Now that doesn't necessarily mean to memorize it. It means to obey it. If Jesus is in your heart, you're obeying him and you're thinking of him and he inhabits your mind and he inhabits your heart. But it doesn't mean that no one should memorize it. It doesn't mean that just memorizing scripture isn't what's meant by hiding it in your heart. You hide it in your heart when you obey him, when you think about him, and again, you are inhabited by him. Paul says you were enriched in everything in him, not by him. In him. And when he becomes, when Jesus becomes the Lord, the, uh, the Lord in your life, it will solve so many problems that you may de- be dealing with. It will solve so many of your problems. And when I say that, I'm not saying you won't have any problems. I'm saying it will solve many of the problems in your life that are caused by wrong choices because you don't listen or read the word of God because you don't know Christ. Many of people's problems are caused because of the poor decisions they make because they have not good counsel. But man, we would spare ourselves a lot of problems if we obeyed and listened to the word of God. That's what Paul's going to talk about later on in this letter. Verses 6 and 7. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, the witness of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. The witness of the Holy Spirit concerning the truth about Jesus was confirmed in you by God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit confirms the Word of God. We we know it's the Word of God because the Holy Spirit confirms it. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. The witness of the Spirit confirms in us the truth of Jesus Christ. See, when you're born again and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit living in your heart, you know, when you hear something and it's not truth, it's not gospel, there's something in your heart that kind of raises a red flag and you go, oh, that, that doesn't sound right. That just doesn't sound right. And that's because the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit isn't bearing witness with that Spirit because it's not of the Spirit of God. And that's why it's important that we know Christ and we have the Spirit because it bears the truth of the Word of God. It bears the Spirit with God's Spirit and with our and fellow man, whether they are of the Spirit or not. And Paul said, you know, the, the, the natural man does not discern the things of the Spirit. They're learned. You know, they're, they're, they're learned through knowing Jesus Christ. So, again, it's, again this is the Paul, the point Paul is talking about here. The church in Corinth, man, it, it had many of the gifts. Again, the witness of the Spirit confirms in us the truth of Jesus Christ. Corinth had many of the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in the church, but they were not operating biblically. They were abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So Paul had to write on how the gifts of the Spirit should be properly used. And there are many churches, you know, you know, use the gifts of the Spirit, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not in order, and it's not decent, you know, as Paul said in, in you know, uh, Corinthians uh, 14, 40. When, when we get to chapters 12 and 14, we'll look at, the, at, at, at what, how Paul deals with that particular section with, with uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how they're to be properly used. So they weren't lacking in any gifts. They had the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation in their church, you know, as they were waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthian church was a church that was living in expectation and waiting for the return of Christ. And, and I, I believe that that's what God wants of us today, that that's a God's goal, and that's God's purpose, that every church throughout the ages, should live in expectation of the closeness of the return of Jesus Christ. Paul said, occupy till I come. That is, stay busy doing the work of the Lord till Jesus comes. I think God wants the church to always live in expectation of of his return at at any time. Jesus said, hey, you don't know when he's going to come. He's going to come like a thief in the night. That's the way the early church lived. That's the way that that the church today should live. And especially in light of all, all that we're seeing this morning, all that we're in light of seeing today, the signs that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, that he could return at any time. But that's the way the early church lived. They expected him to return at any moment. So in Corinth, they were waiting for the Lord's return. Verse 8. He who also confirmed who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He notice he says blameless. He doesn't say they'll be faultless. We are blameless in Christ. There will always be somebody who will find fault with you and me. 
But you know what? You aren't going to be worthy of blame. That you may be blameless, Paul said, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is not only referring to today, but to the day that he'll come and he'll take the church out of the world. And Paul will talk about that in this letter as well. Paul guaranteed the Corinthian believers that God would consider them free from all blame when Jesus returned. And this guarantee wasn't because of their great gifts. It wasn't because of their faultless performance. It wasn't because of anything they did. It was because of what Jesus did for them through his death and resurrection. All who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be considered blameless when he comes back. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, even if it's weak, you are and will be saved. And now we come to the last verse of Paul's introduction, the salutation and thanksgiving, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. Have you ever stopped to thank God for his faithfulness? He's the one who calls us to repentance. He's the one who calls sinners to repentance. Paul said he demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, when we were still living in the world and we wanted nothing to do with Jesus, we could have cared less about Christ. We could have cared less about what he did on the cross. He still died for us. He still died for us. You see, salvation is the heart of God. It was born in the heart of God. God is faithful. So in closing, verses 1 through 9, in verses 1 through 9, Paul pointed out how God saw his church. He saw his church sanctified. He saw them called to be saints. That is, they were called to be holy. Enriched. They were called to be enriched by all the gifts so that they lacked nothing while they were waiting for Jesus to return. And God, who is faithful, would complete that which he has started in us when Jesus returned. Now, when you think about all of this, all that was said, when you think about these truths, how could the people in Corinth in the Corinthian church, get involved in the sins of the world and the flesh. And that's just what they know. What we know today, we have the whole word of God. How could what, you know, because of what we know, the truth of God, how can we get involved in the sins of the world and the flesh? We are a chosen people. We are an enriched people. We are an established people in Christ. They were saints. We are saints. They were set apart for his glory, and so are we. So woe to them and woe to us. To live contrary to our position in Christ. How could they? How could we? Because you see, they walked away from the lordship of Jesus. The lordship of Jesus is a must if there's going to be order and direction in your life and for order and direction in the life of the church. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do the things that I say? 
Lord, Lord means master, master. He's, he's the master of our life, the Lord of our life. But if, again, like they said to the church at Revelation, he says, you know, you, you, you've lost your first love. But the word, the, the word lost is, is a better um, translation is neglected. We just neglect that relationship with Christ. Jesus said in John 15, he said, if you abide in me and I abide in you. That's the key. The word abide means to continue or to remain in a given state or place. It's not just a once in a while thing. It's an everyday abiding in Christ and he in us. And if that's, gonna ha- if that's happening, then there will be order and direction in our lives and there will be direction and order in the life of the church. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful word, Lord. We thank you for what you've done for us and what you've done in us, Lord. And we thank you, God, for the cross. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Again, your grace is is your... We don't deserve your favor. We don't deserve anything that you've given, God. So may we not abuse that grace God is not it is not a, a, a license to sin it is not a dumping ground for my sin but God we are to be saved from our sins God and if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord Savior or you're watching and God's spirit has spoken to your heart and you recognize that you need Christ and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior I want to say this prayer out loud with you And as I pray it out loud, you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. And I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me now to follow you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you said-